0: We'll be in Psalm 60 this evening. This has the longest superscription of all the Psalms in describing the context. Let me read it to you to the choir master, according to Shoshan, Eduth, a miktum of David, for instruction. And normally we hear them as songs, but this one is for that purpose of instruction, when he strove with Aram Nahrahim and with Aram Zobah, and when Joab on his return struck down 12,000 of Edom, in the valley of salt. And the specific background of this is found in 1 Samuel and in, uh, or excuse me, 2 Samuel and in 1 Chronicles. And David, we're told, is having success in his military campaigns. And we read just a short little account in 2 Samuel that says, David also defeated Hadazar, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And so David is off on a military campaign near the Euphrates River. And from the south, which is not told to us in 2 Samuel, But from the south, Edom comes in and sets up a military campaign against Jerusalem. And so David's away. Joab is away. And so Jerusalem is left vulnerable. And the Edomites take advantage of this and set up a military campaign against Jerusalem. And so it sends David... And it sends Judah into a panic over this uh, military campaign that is being set up against them. And so that gives us the context, the immediate context of this psalm is that they are facing an invasion. What is interesting is the language of Psalm 60 resembles the language of Psalm 44. Psalm uh, 44 And Psalm 60, you both have a crisis situation that's taking place in Jerusalem and with the people of God. And what is further interesting is Psalm 45 and Psalm 61 show us victory where the king steps up for his people. That's an interesting couplet showing us, though, the future reign of Christ and the people in crisis, and our hope found in Christ. And keep that in mind as we go through this psalm. Let me read it to you, beginning in verse 1, Psalm 60. O oh God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry. Overstore us. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches, for it totters. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. God has spoken. In his holiness, with exaltation, I will divide up Shechem and the portion out of the vow of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my washbasin. Upon Edom, I cast my shoe. Over Philistia, I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. Did you hear the desperation in the psalmist? Notice the language, rejection. You have broken us down. We are defeated and we cannot conquer our enemies. You'll notice in the first five verses that it is David pleading with God. And then when you get to verses 6 through 8, it's God's response. The subject shifts right at verse 6. No longer is it David addressing God, but now it is as if God's voice breaks in for those three verses. And then it picks up back with David with a final plea in verses 9 through 12. But I'd have you notice how David begins this. He's definitely shocked. He's shaken up by Edom coming in and attacking Jerusalem. And wouldn't you be? You think things are going well. These military campaigns are going well. David is having success. He's nearing the end of his kingship. And yet, now he finds that Jerusalem is being attacked. And so he comes out with this of what God has done. And I don't want you to miss that. Six times he says, You have. And he attributes all that they're facing to God, he doesn't attribute this to the enemy. He doesn't say the enemy has done this to us. He doesn't say the enemy has made the earth shake. He doesn't say the enemy has rejected us. He doesn't say the enemy has torn down our walls. He doesn't say the enemy has made us drunk. And so now we stagger. He says, God, you have done this. Look at it in the text. You have rejected us. You have been angry. You have made the land quake. You have torn it open. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that make us stagger. all of this as David is saying, this is what God has done. He attributes the hardship he attributes the crisis he attributes it all as coming from the hand of God it's rather shocking. When you read it that way, but that's what the text teaches us. In fact, we're, we're forced to face that reality that this is God's sovereign handiwork that they're facing. But notice what it says is that they're rejected, and when you do a word study on that, it's as if they, they were stinking like a festering wound in God's sight. Quite a vivid word. Rejected. God's chosen people, and certainly this is balanced out with verse 5, where he uses the adjective of their being beloved of God. But in verse 1, they stink like a festering wound in God's sight. It says, if God repudiate him, then he says, they've broken down our defenses. That God has done this. God has taken away anything that could have been a fortress to them to have protected them. But not only that, he says, you've been angry, and the word angry there is that of breathing. You might think, why is it translated, if it's breathing, why is it translated angry? It's like an animal that is breathing heavily. Think of a bull that's breathing in and out, that's about ready to charge. That's the word for angry here that is being used. It's very vivid. But notice what it says right after that. You've been angry. He says, oh, restore us. as he's facing the crisis that God himself has brought upon Jerusalem, has brought upon them, he goes to that same God and says, will you restore us? That is, will you turn back to us? Will you shine your face upon us? Will you go from your anger that is being poured out upon us? And will you now smile upon us? The language here in these, these verses, and, or in verse 1, is all that of a personal affliction of God's people. You notice how it says, you have rejected us. You've been angry, so restore us. You have broken our defenses. This is all directed at the people of God. So you can take this as a a personal affliction that God has brought upon a people according to his sovereign hand. Notice how verse 2 shifts, though. Verse 2 You have made the land to quake, you have torn it open. Repair its breaches, for it totters. What does it do when the land quakes? And of course, we know this is poetic language. But it is to tributes. God is over nature. That which seems immovable, such as the ground we're on, it's unthinkable to think of the ground to just tear open in front of us. Now, we know that happens at times, but we've never really seen that. We well, think of the ground as being fairly stable, don't we? But he says, no, God, you have made the ground shake and you have, you have split it open. God is sovereign over nature, and we have to come to grips to that. with that. Let me just give you a couple of examples of God's sovereignty over nature. Plagues. Remember the plagues in Egypt? Who brought that upon Egypt? God. God brought that upon Egypt. You, you see things that are taking place in Egypt that are unexplainable other than the supernatural hand of God bringing it upon Egypt. Egypt. God is sovereign over nature. And it's not like when we say that God is sovereign over nature, we would be making a massive mistake in understanding God's sovereignty over nature if we said, well, God doesn't intervene in nature except when he needs to. Because then he's not really sovereign over it. He's sovereign over nature whenever he brings the plagues, but everything else is just, you know, naturally occurring. That's not what the Bible presents, is it? How about the flood? Worldwide flood that took place. Where did all that water come from? How did the deeps open up and gush out water and rain flow upon the earth? And flood the entire surface of the earth. How will a new heavens and a new earth, whether this is destroyed and there's a new one brought about, or this one's refined? How does that happen when God does that by fire? If God's not sovereign over nature, Isaiah forty-five Reads these words in verse 7 I form light and create darkness, I make well being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. God is absolutely sovereign, not only corporately over people, as David here says, but then he moves to nature that God Himself is. Over nature. And then he, after he says this, just like after he has said, God, you're angry with us, restore us. Here he says, You have made the land a quake. You have torn it open, which means that those barriers, that that protection we thought we have, it's gone. So then he asks, Repair its breaches for its totters. So the God that splits the earth, he's asking, Will you, like a daughter, bring healing about now? That's what it means when he says repair the breach is, is will you bring healing like a doctor. Verse 3 gets very personal. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that make us stagger. Many commentators see a parallel between those things. the, The idea of not only experiencing difficult things, but in their drunkenness, they're seeing things that trouble them. But what we should notice about this is, you have made, that is, God has brought these things upon his people, that they have experienced hardship, they have experienced unbearable things, they have experienced hard things, and specifically, here it was war, here it was being attacked, and it was unexpected, is there anything more horrifying than war and the ravages of war? It's hard to think of it. It's a terrifying thing. And they're seeing this as Jerusalem's vulnerable without David there, without Joab there. And notice this, what it says here. Who is God doing this to? The pagan? The Edomites? The Moabites? Is he doing this to the Egyptians? No. You have made your people. In verse 5, they're called beloved. God's own beloved people face hardship according to God's sovereign plan. Did you get that? God's people face hardship according to God's sovereign plan. That's what the text tells us. Boy, that's not a message that sells on TBN, is it? I think of Proverbs 16.33, The lot is cast into the lap, but every... Every decision is from the Lord. God is sovereign over people groups, God is sovereign over nature, and God is sovereign over the events that take place in our lives. God is sovereign over all human events over all earthly events, over all space and time, there is not a leaf that blows in the mildest breeze that is outside of God's sovereignty. And they're experiencing hard things, and David says this comes as a result of your sovereignty. This is your Providence. You see, the experiencing of historical things, what we experience in real life and real time, is the outworking of God's sovereign plan, which when it takes place in time and space, we call God's providence over us. Uh, We were talking before service about how providence is sometimes used by people as a superstitious thing. This must be of providence as if providence is some sort of entity of its own. It's some sort of force that just is taking place in time. People attribute things to providence as if it is a deity. But what we have to know as Christians with a biblical worldview is that all that takes place in time and space is God's providence. The idea of providence as being something of some sort of force is pagan idolatry. I forget who it was that said this, is that to deny the sovereignty of God is to effectively be an atheist. Because it's to attribute things to random chance, as if random chance was a competing God to the one true God. David so clearly makes that his point here. In the London Baptist Confession, it says this of providence, All things come to pass unchangeably and certainly in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, who is the first cause. Nothing happens to anyone by chance or outside of God's providence. Yet, by the same providence, God arranges all things to occur according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily or freely or in response to other causes. It's quite a statement. In essence, what it says is God is sovereign over all things. The Heidelberg question at Catechism asks this, What do you understand by the providence of God? And the answer is, Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them, That leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruit and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us, not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. You know, it's amazing that we will see in this is that as David attributes all of these things to God, he is appealing to the fatherly hand. Jesus said, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. Nothing happens outside of God's sovereignty. And for the Christian, for the one in Christ, we know it comes from a fatherly hand, a perfect Father a Father that loves His people and calls them beloved. If we just view providence, and I think sometimes we do, unintentionally, even when we do have a strong foundation and belief in God's sovereignty, when we we view it as just being something unexpected rather than something that God is doing then we lose all hope of any tragedy or any good thing that takes place in our lives. If it's just random, if it just happens, then we have no hope that it's for our good. We just have to believe that we're a cosmic accident and I've faced fate. But when tragedy strikes and we know that our God is bringing his providence from his fatherly hand, we can have hope that it's good and even good for us. He goes on to say, you have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. That is, we are drunken by God. We can't even stand up straight. That's just speaking of the utter shock Notice what it says in verse 4, though. You have set up a banner for those who fear you. What is the banner? Well, in military campaigns, what would happen is the, the strong leaders would hold the flag, hold the banner, and that banner would be a rallying cry for the troops. So he says, You have set up a banner for those who fear you. Now, the banner is set up as a rallying cry, but why do the troops need to be rallied? Because they're being beaten. That's why they rally the troops. That's why you have the halftime pep talk to the team that's down. You raise the banner to rally them up. And this banner that is lifted up, notice who it's for. Those that are being beaten down, but it's for those who fear you. It is those who know God. What a wonderful banner we have, isn't it? The gospel is our banner, that we are set free. And this banner that is raised, it's for a purpose, That they may flee to it from the bow. That is that they might find refuge. They might find safety. In verse 5, we're given another purpose. That your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. That's amazing that under discipline, under tragedy and a crisis that God has brought upon them, David acknowledges that they're beloved so so get this point here is even under discipline david does not doubt god's love for his own people and that's quite a lesson for us is that when things do go south We never have to doubt God's love for us. He loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you. That is the greatest love you will ever experience. And it's an eternal love. It never began, so it will never end. That is what we can hang on to. That is our banner. That is our rallying cry in the severest of crisis is that even when we're under the disciplining hand of God, we know that we are still beloved of God. You know, I want you to notice something about this, though. As David attributes these things to God, I want you to notice, David makes it clear that God is bringing these things upon him, but never does David say that God is unfaithful. you've broken us, you're angry at us, you've made the earth shake, you have made us see horrible things, but he never says you're unfaithful. So what does that mean? He doesn't say, God, you're unfaithful to us. It means that even in hardship, even in crisis, even in in a severe moment like this, God is still faithful in hardships. God is still faithful in the the crisis moments that we face. Even in the case of natural disasters, God is still faithful. And David trusts the Lord throughout this difficulty and fearful moment. It's interesting, though, also... And I want you to not miss this. Edom attacks Israel. Why did Edom attack Israel? God was disciplining Israel. And he did that through other nations. Just like he will do with Babylon. And just like he will do with Assyria. And then he will come back and do what to those nations? He will destroy them. In other words, Israel and their wandering and their need of discipline, it affected other nations. Entire nations are affected by what took place with Israel. Let me put it this way, when you consider this for a moment. In God's discipline of his people, it involves others. When God disciplines his people, you and I, it often involves other people. Reflect on that for a moment. It's an amazing revelation that God shows us here in the text. That he disciplines us and that happens through other People. James Hamilton in his commentary says this the stability of all the world is jeopardized by the sin of God's people. It's quite a statement. But we certainly see that here, as other nations, entire nations, And then look at verses 6 through 8. It continues. This is where now God speaks. Verse 6, God has spoken in his holiness. With exultation I will divide up Shechem and the portion out of the vowel of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my washbasin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe. Over Philistia... I shout in triumph. Nine nations mentioned there. And I want you to notice that in nine nations is showing us God has a totality in his sovereign control. And notice how they're described. Gilead is... Mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my wash basin. These are my nations. They're not their nations, but they are my nations for me to do my bidding with, is in other words what that means. I will do what I will do with these nations. Now, if we begin to say that's not right of God to do that, that's unfair of God to control nations and to control people groups like that. Well, notice how it begins. God has spoken in his holiness. Some translations might say God has spoken from his sanctuary. That is that God is set apart. He's not like you and I. God is separate. He's holy. He has an undiluted perfection. He is pure light. And so, His plan over the nations and over His people comes from His perfect decree. And the psalm, again, to say it, repeat it, it forces us to consider the reality that God is absolutely in control of all things. I I love this passage in Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will." The the Lord is the one who has the strings of the heart on what the king will do. Why did Edom think it was a good idea? Well, Edom has a natural inclination to go, let's go and attack Jerusalem while David's gone, Joab's gone, they're vulnerable. We can maybe conquer them. That's their own hidden agenda. But the ultimate cause is that God is bringing this about. Now, you think of uh, the Pharaoh and his heart being changed by God. As Martin Luther noted, God didn't put anything in Pharaoh's heart that wasn't already there. And just consider what God tells Jeremiah about the nations and why Jeremiah was born, why Jeremiah was set apart from the womb and Jeremiah 1 and verse 10 Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow and to build and to plant. It's incredible how, how clear God is on this issue that He's sovereign over the nations. From God speaking, you move back into David's plea as he recounts what it is that God says. And he begins this plea with verse 9 where he asks really a rhetorical question. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Let me ask you, who will bring you victory? Who will win the day for you? That's the question David's asking. Who's going to bring us to Edom to have victory over Edom? He asks another question. Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. So if God isn't with them, who's going to lead them to Edom? If God's not walking with the army, who's going to ensure the victory? The answer is that no one. So listen to how he prays. Oh, grant us help against the foe. I want you to notice this phrase, and you hang on to it. For vain is the salvation of man. For vain is the salvation of man. But, verse 12, with God we shall do valiantly. It is He who will tread down our foes. Without God, the strongest army is but a weak and powerless group. Without God, leading his people. They are pure, powerless. Our bravery, our courage as Christians and as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is not ours. It's because the Lord walks with us. That's why the early church prayed for courage. That's why the early church prayed for boldness. It wasn't because they naturally inherently were bold This is why Jesus had to tell his disciples when he gives them the Great Commission, all power, all authority has been given to me. Now go. They were frightened, weak, shaking men. It was only by the power of Christ and all authority being given to Christ that they could go forth and turn the world upside down. And it is only that with Christ marching with us that the church continues to turn the world upside down. And it is only with Christ that is marching with us that the church will never be destroyed, but will continually be built because our great commander is building it. If we don't have the Lord walking with us, who will take us to Edom? We'll fall. I want you to note a couple things. David appeals to a sovereign God that is in control of all things. He appeals to the God that he attributes to being in control of the crisis that they're facing Any praise to that God. You see, God's sovereignty drives us to fervent prayer. God's sovereignty drives us to trusting in God, which means walking forward. You see, a knowledge of God's absolute sovereignty does not lead us to fatalism. And I know I say that often, but I think we need to hear it again. Fatalism is the idea that if it's all going to happen, why do I need to do anything? I'll just sit back and let God work it out. That doesn't understand God's sovereignty. That's not biblical. That's not what we see. In David, it's not what we see in Moses. That's not what we see in Paul. That's not what we see from Genesis to Revelation. An absolute assurance of God's sovereignty drives God's people to their knees to plea with the sovereign God. There's another thing I want to draw our attention to is this, is discipline And even a sense of rejection does not mean ultimate rejection. God disciplines those whom he loves. And what we have to know is that when we're under that disciplining hand of God, we have to remember this, is that God has promised not to abandon his people. And God has told us he will not forsake us, and that there's nothing that can separate us from his love. And so whatever you go through in life, if you're under that disciplining hand of God, That is God working in your life to transform you for your good and for his glory. And you can hang on to the fact that he has never stopped loving you. The Heidelberg Catechism asks this question about providence. How does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? So how does this knowledge that God is... Sovereign over all things. How does that help us? That's the question. Here's the answer. We can be patient. You could just stop right there, and that would be a good answer. It doesn't stop right there. But what do we do with this fact that God is sovereign over all things and that His providence is working out? You can be patient when things go against us. Thankful when things go well. And for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from his love. All creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. Praise God for that. And finally, I want to point out one thing that is blaringly clear. A good king prays for his people. When a king sees his people distraught, facing tragedy, facing crisis in their life, a good king will pray for them. A good king will go and petition the Father, on behalf of his people, a good king always prays for his distressed people. Now David shows us that's what he did, but I want you to know that there's a greater king that prays for us now. Let me give you a glimpse of his prayer. As he prayed for his own that we're about ready to face tragedy, as he himself was about to go to the cross for them and die and pay the penalty for their sins, on his heart was his people. That's an incredible thought. That our king, as he's about ready to face the wrath of God upon the cross and the physical punishment of man, his people were on his heart. And he was interceding on their behalf. He says this, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one the world, Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That's what Jesus prays on behalf of his people. You're in this world. You're facing this world, and the world hates you because you're not of this world. And Jesus prays for you that you would be protected from the evil one and that in his safe keeping you will be kept by the Father and that you'll even have joy as the world hates you. That's what our King prays for you right now. And he never ceases to do that. That's what a good king does. And we have the greatest king. We have King Jesus. Heavenly Father.